SpongeBob, Shrek, The Daily Show, Sailor Moon, Boy Bands, Sports Enthusiasts, Sherlock Holmes, Barbie, Britney Spears, Hello Kitty, Jandek, Comic Books, Superheroes, Buffy. These are just some of the many, many topics I cover on my podcast, How to Stand, a show about both specific fandoms and just pop culture, internet culture, internet trends overall. Check out How to Stand in the same feed as my other podcast, 17 Karat K-Pop, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm an independent creator, and so please spread the word about the show. There's an episode for every interest, and I really do appreciate the support spreading the word. You can also find out more info at my site, 17karatkpop.weebly.com. Thanks so much. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to How to Stand. Today we're talking about all things American Girl, specifically focusing on the original historical characters, the original focus of American Girl, the books that complemented the dolls. What better guest to have for that than Allison Horrocks, who is one of the hosts of the show American Girls, which is a podcast that goes into the backstory, the historical context of the American Girl books and just adds context and adds some interesting new thoughts about them in hindsight really interesting show that I'm curious to hear more about. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I would just love to know your introduction story, like how you got into American Girl in the first place. And then also part two of that question is how you got into how you decided the podcast should start. What led you to decide that? American Girl was a really big part of my life a long time ago uh, when I first received an American Girl doll when I was about eight years old. So it was a big part of that kind of section of my childhood. And that was because of a gift from my mom. So my mom and I both love dolls. We still love dolls. And she was a doll collector. She wanted me to have the Molly McIntyre doll and felt like that would be a good gift for me. She was right. And so <laughs> that's kind of what started it. And my parents were keen for me to have the dolls and to have different kinds of things, but also always wanted me to read the books. The very same day that I received my Molly doll, my mom and I sat down and started reading the first book together. She actually was reading it sort of to me and with me. So American Girl was a big part of my childhood initially and then came back kind of in bursts, right? So I'd meet people who would say, oh, you know, you remember your American Girl dolls or something you loved about it and then really became a big part of my life again in about 2018. When Mary Mahoney and I started researching to do a podcast, we made some pitches at conferences, kind of worked out some ideas and then launched in 2019. I'm going on about four years of American Girl podcasting and then have that kind of childhood experience from the mid-90s. Was Molly always your favorite? Did that change? Molly was definitely always my favorite and I would say is still my favorite today. So I have <laughs> a Molly doll who is from 1995. And I have a Molly doll from last year, from 2021. There is just nothing like that doll to me. Like no one will ever compare, but <laughs> I love other dolls for these complete other reasons, right? I very recently bought a Claudie Wells doll. I have a Rebecca Rubin. I love other American Girl dolls, but they're part of more my adult collecting or kind of recent life. Nothing compares to that first Molly doll. Yeah. My first actually was Nellie. Oh. Yeah. I don't know why, but for some reason I was, I remember my very first trip to American Girl place. I was like eight years old. And for some reason, I just picked Nellie. I just was drawn to her. And then I was like, oh, I should probably get Samantha because they're best friends. But I picked the sidekick first. I don't know why. But 
That's a beautiful doll, and that's actually one of the few from kind of the core historical collection that I haven't gotten yet. I very recently got Ruth, who is oh, a friend yeah. doll to Kit Kitteridge, and she is a lovely doll, but it's kind of nice being an adult. I can kind of pick and choose. Like, I don't feel pressure to have something just to have it, but there are collector pieces or different dolls and different books that I just want. <laughs> so that's right, kind of yeah. what draws me to things. Right. It's not about the trend. It's about the actual just quality. Yeah. What is it about American Girl that has been so successful at this? Were you into history before actually getting into American Girl or was that kind of an entryway? And if so, like, how did that, what do you think they did effectively? It's funny. I get asked this question in a lot of different ways because I work as a historian. I'm a public historian. That's part of my day job. And so I think people are often curious from that angle, you know, did you always love history? Did you always want to do this? And the truth is, I did love stories and history as a kid. And I loved historic sites and the American Girl dolls. But I didn't have an awareness that that would be a job. I didn't quite have the connective tissue to say, I love thinking about history and the way that people lived in the past. And that will be something I do as a day job. Always wanted to be a medical doctor. And so obviously that changed at some point. But as a kid, I really appreciated the stories. I loved reading the books with my mom. That was very special to me. And I really just liked the world building. I think that's the piece that sticks out to me all these years later when I go back to it. It's the really smart and kind of savvy way that the books pull you into a different place in time and make you really curious, right? They make you want to know more. Something that wasn't popular when I was a kid that I've since really gotten into are the books like Samantha's World or Molly's World. And they're these beautifully illustrated expansions of the peek into the past sections, which are kind of historical overviews written with experts about the era the girls are set in. I just love those. Like they're really well researched. They're intriguing. They give you some of the real behind the character's story. There's these girls that are relatable and really written to be compelling to us today. And then there's the real story. And I, I think that's what I've always found really cool. I couldn't have articulated that as a kid. I was just really drawn to Molly and her experience. But now I think that's kind of what stays with me. Yeah, that makes sense because I always, part of the appeal to me, I actually wasn't really much into history at all before American Girl. And I think what got me into it was, yeah, like you said, like you really got immersed. Mm. It wasn't just like you got American Girl and then you played with them. Like specifically, every part of it was part of creating that world. You could go to any brand and get like a doll bed, but you can only go to American Girl to get like a, I don't know, Revolutionary War era bed or something, you know? The accessories, the outfits are all so specific that it really adds to that. Yeah, like you said, like creating this whole world for them. You look back at the catalog, so I have a, a small collection, uh, pretty modest, but I have a decent range of catalogs from different eras that I've picked up. And something that really sticks out about those early catalogs is, first of all, they're huge, like they're physically very big. And getting the mail was a different experience when I was a kid for a lot of reasons, one of which was if I got mail, it was like always good because I didn't get bills at eight, you know, so mm -hmm. it was always an exciting thing. And the other piece of that was 
the attention to detail and the catalog and what I see now as making something really special. I've never been part of fandoms like Star Wars. You know, I've never been part of like a huge, like multinational, multi-billion dollar fandom. But American Girl, when I was like, I wasn't a Disney kid, really, any of that. American Girl was like, wow, this thing is really special and really beautiful. And it's for me, right? This catalog came for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's something that a lot of girls, especially, but not only girls, remember getting something in the mail that felt big and important and not just kind of a castaway little ad for toys, right? Like, but something really very unique that was sent to you. Yeah, like, and I remember the the catalogs used to have this, each historical character's page would have kind of like a bio, like a whole profile, basically. So you kind of saw like with each character in the catalog, a bit of their backstory, a bit of the historical context to kind of get you interested in reading more. And I always love that because it would also always have like a little explainer about like, here's a big takeaway from her story or some mm. sort of lesson, you know, like it would be, um, she learned that, uh, you know, friends disagree on some things or just like something kind of generic, but there was always a takeaway that that felt applicable to me or to, you know, anyone in my position. That's what was so brilliant about it. And, you know, the creator being an educator and the early authors all coming from some kind of educational background, they understood that there are universal things that connect people. And I think they balanced really well, especially in those early books, a sense of what transcends time and then what is something that, say, only Felicity is experiencing because she lives in this hotbed of American Revolution and she's an elite girl in Virginia, right? It's kind of teaching you both of those things. I also loved, you know, getting books as a kid, going to the library or the bookstore you know, my other favorite historical fiction, that was it. I'd get a Dear America book, I'd get so engrossed, and the adventure would end. Even now as an adult reader, there's times where you want to crawl into the book that you're reading. American mm-hmm. Girl said, yeah, do that. Come to the store. Play with all this Felicity stuff. Spend $1,000 to have a whole <laughs> day, right? But that possibility was there, whereas you read a Dear America book, you fell in love with these characters, and you closed it, and it was over. American Girl said, no, like, if you're kind of a maybe nerdy girl, here's your fandom, right? Like, here's kind of your space to really go all out. And that was very cool. Yeah, that that explains its appeal really well. I'm curious about hindsight, because like you, I was really immersed in the books as a kid, but there are so many ways I read them differently now or just look at them differently now. My question isn't so specific as just I'm curious what your thoughts are about the age range the books are targeting, because I always found it interesting the... Like when I was younger reading them, how I felt like it was very relatable to me as like an eight or nine year old. And now that there's more that I realize the books left out or kept in or just it's just I'm curious what you think about like how history was taught in these books in a way that was age appropriate, but also I guess what I'm getting at is um, I remember Valerie Tripp said this quote once that I thought about a lot, which is we tell stories that are the true history because we we respect the reader. We respect, we trust the readers. Even if you're a young person, you can understand these harrowing parts of history. I'm saying I, I guess I better appreciate now how the books taught me some dark parts of history as a kid and trusted me to take that information in. Curious what you think about all the the ways they tried to make it, you know, age appropriate. Yeah, that's such a huge question. 
there have been many times where people have said in terms of our podcast, American Girls, essentially you could make a different kind of podcast, right? You could talk about this from the perspective of a child psychologist, or you could look at this in terms of childhood development and different ways to introduce trauma. And the truth of it is we're both historians and we are both to a degree fans of American Girl. And that's our point of view that we talk about these things from. So we're not experts on child development. We are not trying to say that we are even experts on children's literature. We're coming at it as people who knew a certain set of things about the world in the 1990s and grew up in that world. And now as adults living through the 2020s, here's our perspective on things now. And how do these two things speak to each other or not? And sometimes comically, like, what did we misremember? Or what have we <laughs> held on to as being true about the books that's actually not? And I think there really aren't a ton of spaces where people talk in that way about things that they used to love. A lot of kind of nostalgia marketing is hold on to the way that you used to feel. And we aren't really totally trying to do that. We're trying to say, what if you held up that thing that you really loved and you were open to a different conversation? So I look back at the books with so much appreciation, with a lot of gratitude. A bunch of listeners who we have connected with over the years very recently met Valerie Tripp at a live event at a library, and she told them that she holds this amazing trust with adult fans today that she really tries to honor, right? Like she knows that she changed all of these people's lives. And part of the way that we kind of honor what people like her did for us is we ask questions about why she wrote certain things. And we also understand that her books are now 30 plus years old, right? <laughs> Which is mm -hmm. sort of, you know, a strange thing, but these books are themselves artifacts. And so we talk about that a little bit. I read Josefina Montoya's books one way as a young person, and now I see all these different things because I understand something about colonialism that, frankly, I wouldn't have been taught in school in the 90s and may not be taught now. But I have the responsibility as an adult to say, well, I can read this differently. So I think that's part of what's like really made the revisiting piece of it enjoyable. Would it make more sense to say that as an adult, you, it's not like your level of appreciation for the books has changed. It's just how you interpret them has kind of expanded. I think too, when I was a young reader, right, I never really gave a thought to the author. I never really thought that much about, you know, a person sat down with a research team. I might even appreciate them more. I think I probably enjoyed them more, just that pure joy of being young and reading a book you really love. I think now I appreciate them on a whole other level. And I think going through different writing and editing processes through jobs and stuff, I think I also understand these products are put out by a corporation. And mm -hmm. so I think something I understand more and more and more as time goes on, an author or a contributor or an illustrator might have an amazing idea or vision, and that may never make it out into the world for reasons that have nothing to do with them, right? <laughs> yeah. We, we all have a boss. Those bosses have bosses and they have shareholders. And so I think as time goes on, I, I give sort of more and more latitude to wondering like, well, what other things didn't make it in here for reasons that have nothing to do with anyone who made this? And, and I think obviously I wasn't thinking about that in 1995. Yeah. 
how specifically have your views, I know you kind of talked about this on your podcast before, how certain characters specifically you've grown to like or dislike more as an adult because I mean, I remember reading certain books and like, like you, you guys said on your show about like Felicity, there's some characters who like, you get older and you're like, you know what, you're actually maybe not as likable as I thought, whereas I thought you were like best friend material as a little kid. <laughs> I'm just curious, like how your perspective on the actual characters has changed. And, you know, in hindsight, does it seem like, wow, they did a good job kind of making those characters the age of the readers? I always think about this interview that George R.R. R. Martin did years ago where he said that, you know, something he takes pride in as an author is that there are people who love and people who hate every single character he's ever created and that he mm -hmm. takes that as something to be proud of because it means they're complex enough that they people are able to see all different things. No one is so singularly one note that they are universally reviled or universally beloved. And I'd say I probably like just about all of them more. The character who did kind of surprise me, Molly was a little bit different than I remembered, right? I kind of shaped her into being something more different and a bit more likable, to be honest, in my brain, because I wanted to be like her. So I wanted her to be likable. Samantha, right? You know, you listen way back, like four years ago, we said all these things about Samantha. And then I really loved her books, reading them as an adult. I loved that character so much. I saw so many different things. I think part of it too is as an adult, right? As much as we joke on the show and kind of pick apart the characters, they are children. And so kind of no matter what we say, we do have an internal perspective and compass of these are supposed to be stories about eight to 12 year olds. You know, most of the characters in the books finding their way or adults in their world finding their way. Kirsten didn't resonate with me in the 90s. She just didn't for whatever reason. I loved Little House books. I loved other kinds of characters. And Kirsten didn't, in my mind, stand up to Half Pint, Laura Ingalls Wilder. And reading her as an adult, I really enjoyed them. I really liked a lot of what was happening in the story. So I think part of what's fun too is despite having this podcast, like I'm not a rereader. I don't reread things. I'm not a person who's read any book many times. So what's funny about this is these are just about the only things I revisit. <laughs> so um, it has not taught me to revisit other books because I feel like, you know, there's a hundred new great books published every day. I want to look forward. But this has kind of taught me the value of finding a different book and a different story within a book I've already read. Right. Yeah. There are details I pick up on now that I didn't before. Interesting. I just think they, the books, another thing they've done that I think makes them rereadable and interesting and makes these characters so complex is that there are things that the characters seem to focus on that are very, very much of their age. Mm -hmm. Like, there's, you know, war going on or there's other huge historical traumas, but the main characters are worried about, like, if their friend likes them still. I don't know. But, like, something that seems very frivolous, but the stories are from the perspectives of those, you know, preteens. So, of course, that's the focus of the book. I just think they did a good a good job balancing, you know, they, they talk about the bigger issues in their historical context, but, you know, it's still definitely the mind of a preteen. 
Oh, yeah. You know, Molly's a great example of that. And even thinking about her father, right, being away during wartime service in the 1940s, there's, I think, some really kind of smart, nuanced things in there of she's really proud of her father, right? But she also just misses him. This kind of universal human emotion of you can be proud that someone is doing something you admire, but you want them to come back. And, you know, she understands on some level that there are food shortages, that she has to change her behaviors. She doesn't like it. And I think on a much grander scale, thinking about sort of like myths about that period that everyone just sort of loved this intense self-sacrifice asked of them, the book really hits on something quite smart, you know? So I think that's something that those types of things keep you coming back, keep you asking questions about it. Right. Were you ever into the movies that correspond with the books? So that timeline wasn't quite there for me. So those came out when I was a teenager. They were, the first batch was um, produced by Julia Roberts. And so I have only seen those as an adult. So I have, I have only watched those now. When they came out, I think it was probably also just like a technology thing. I don't believe any of them came out in theaters. I think they were kind of more like VHS DVD products. And just at the time that they were out, just not really something I was looking looking for. I don't think it was like Disney Channel original movies where it was like, you will watch this movie because we're screening it every day for two months. <laughs> you yeah. know, so I think the Kit movie was in theaters. Oh, but okay. Yeah, but that wasn't till like late 2000s. But yeah, but at first it was all straight to DVD. It was interesting because I remember I liked the movies, but I was also not a huge fan of them in some ways. Because it just felt like with the books, I could create my own image of what was happening. And sometimes with movies, I just didn't like that they were interpreting it for me, you know? Yeah. And the whole thing, I think, about those early American Girl books before they changed the format was you were able to sit with six individual stories and kind of watch the character grow. The whole point is they age across the six and they have a birthday like two thirds of the way through or so. So I think what was different about the film is like they do all feel a bit rushed to me. I think the Samantha one is is one of the best because it focuses in on a specific kind of window of time and doesn't try to do everything. I think that's probably why that one is really good. Right. Because otherwise you're condensing like six books. Yeah. Or trying to. <laughs> right, right. I'm curious what you think about the shift over time, because for those who don't know, Pleasant Company was bought by Mattel quite a while ago. And, you know, ever since the historical characters have kind of been relegated, I was just on the site the other day just because I was curious. And yeah, they sure are kind of just in their own little bubble. They're not a big part of the website. You kind of have to seek them out. And over time, I've always been kind of sad to see the historical characters kind of be taking a backseat to all the contemporary new dolls that American Girl focuses on. But I also like those too, because it was always exciting for me too to see, you know, the dolls that are contemporary and can make them look like you or you can make them dress like you and it's just modern day stuff. I guess I've always been conflicted because it's always been kind of sad to me, the historical focus fading a bit. But at the same time, I, I understand why they're from a, a, I guess, a sheer marketing perspective, why they changed. I'm just curious how you think about the brand differently in that change over time. This, yeah, this is something I think a lot of people are curious about. I think for a long time, you know, Mattel has kind of been labeled as sort of the reason, right, why this changed. And in doing research for our book and kind of going back, under Pleasant Company, there's a lot of attempts to kind of pull in the contemporary. 
it's nothing like it would become later but there's a lot of different kind of contemporary pieces and then it's like late 90s early 2000s after that acquisition that it becomes bigger there's still great characters who are released after that Mattel acquisition, you know, Rebecca Rubin, Kit Kitteridge, Nenea, all these different characters. But I think even this past few weeks, so like summer of 2022, great illustration of conflict within the brand. Claudie Wells, who is a 1920s character who, you know, was released to a lot of fanfare and acclaim from fans of the historical Britt Bennett was chosen to write the books. She's like a very beloved adult author, great writer. That character got released. And then very shortly after, there was a whole new lineup, truly me dolls, who exist in the contemporary world. And there are already people feeling like Claudie is not getting quite the attention and push that she should, even compared to like a Courtney Moore. She's the 1980s girl that came out just over a year ago. And honestly, I have to say, like, I see that tension. I see that back and forth where I think for at least 25 years, the brand has ebbed and flowed. They'll release the historical character, but there won't be the same kind of push. And I think part of what's different now is in the early years when they just did the historical, they put everything into making those dynamic and to building that whole world out. I think now there's just simply so much going on. And the truth is, I don't run a multi-billion dollar toy company. I have no idea what it takes to keep mm -hmm. that going. I do know that for fans, there's sort of this introduction of the historical. And almost immediately, what I do find interesting, there'll always be other content that's put out to satisfy another part of the market. If there was the amount of stuff released for the new historical dolls like there used to be, I do think people would buy it again. I think that wasn't true maybe 20 years ago. I think it's true again because I think adult collecting has become cool or cooler for a lot of people. And adults have disposable income that they wouldn't have had as children. Not everybody, but some people do have that. So I'm always very curious. The truth is I'm not in marketing. I don't know exactly how this stuff works, but I think that the brand has ebbed and flowed for so long. I really don't know where they're going to go next because I think Claudie is kind of a test. And I hope that fans and everyone really show up and buy the historical stuff so that young people today will have those good historical characters going forward. I've been thinking a lot about this and part of me used to worry more that the historical characters were just going away. Samantha and some others would, they'd say like, they're going into the archives. You can't mm -hmm. buy them ever again. And then of course they came back, but it's been like cycles where they like make it seem like they're, they're like phasing it out. Now lately I've been thinking that's probably not going to happen. And it's probably, they're probably going to keep trying to cater to two audiences at once because they want to keep the the people who grew up with the brand who really really were drawn by the historical characters and they also want to keep the younger fans who maybe miss the early historical stuff but are you know more into the modern day stuff so it's just I feel like it's not like they're going away it's um kind of just fluctuating I think something that's also been surprising because there are all these stories about millennials, they don't collect or like millennials don't want their parents or grandparents antiques. And that's borne out by research, obviously. But I think what's sometimes missing is like millennials do obviously collect things, right? I think intuitively we know that. But they might be hyper specific about it or they may only want certain kinds of things. 
I think people generally underestimate certain kinds of collectors and doll people are probably high in that category. There's never been a worldwide like American Girl con, like a Comic Con, but I think if you did one, it would be successful. 10 years ago, I don't know. But I think right now there's kind of this sweet spot of like millennials collecting, millennial parents collecting, people on buffer generations around the prime American Girl Target collecting. So it's a really interesting time to kind of be part of the firsthand and secondhand market for AG. Yeah, it is really interesting because American Girl profits the past few years have been kind of down, but then like the past year, they like shot up again. And I've seen like this, like you said, like a new, maybe it's not cool, but it's cooler than it used to be to just be this proud American Girl fan at any age because of like Instagram, YouTube, like people are getting so creative with how they show dolls in outfits they made themselves or stop motion movies. I mean, people are really, it's interesting to see the fandom take on this new life. If you read the coverage of, you know, there were influencers who did a story with the New York Times at the American Girl Cafe. I think something that totally was not anticipated was that American Girl was totally ripe for camp, for kind of like a camp day out at the American Girl store or that people would have their bachelorette parties. I also think algorithms on social media allow you to connect in a hyper-specific way with people who really like the exact same thing as you. And people who never would have found each other before are able to find each other. And then it kind of reinforces, this is cool, right? This is something that you should feel okay doing or that you should feel excited about. And there are, I think, many pockets of the inner that that are hostile and not so good places and dangerous places. But I also think American Girl has spawned a lot of healthy places for people to actually connect. And years ago, they had a portal through their website where you could find a pal to correspond with. And it was like very heavily monitored and all those things. And what's funny is like those people are grown up now and they DM each other, you know, yeah. <laughs> like the, the world has changed and, and it's not all positive or all healthy or all safe, but there is a lot of it that I think is better than people give it credit for. Yeah. Are there some examples of that cool membership that you've seen among like your podcast listeners? What has the feedback been like to the show? Have people talked about how it's kind of maybe rekindled their love of this stuff? So there are a lot of different places where people connect with each other, a lot of which are web-based, some, some of which are not. So we have a really active community through our Patreon that talk to each other on a Discord. And that is active every single day and people do watch-alongs and they have meetup groups. So our uh, Washington, D.C. meetup group, I think, is the most active. They do something really regularly. They are planning a trip out to a site that's connected to the Addy books. Like they're really plugged in with each other in real life. There is a D&D group underneath that umbrella. Folks find us on Instagram all over the place. And, and all of that is super rich and meaningful. I think what's been probably most rewarding is getting emails from people who say something like, you know, I talked to my mom about reading Kirsten 20 plus years ago, and now we listen to the podcast together. 
it's very cool and very surprising. And there are listeners who are about my age who have young children. And one of our listeners who participates in our online book club, her daughter will ask every Monday if it's like time to listen to the ladies, like we're the ladies. <laughs> and our, our listener, Tara has said, you know, my daughter has no idea what you're talking about, but she laughs when I laugh because I'm laughing at your jokes. She's like, I know she doesn't get your jokes because I think she's four or five years old, but she connects some somehow with our voices. And I think that is very cool and very special. I didn't grow up with podcasts, obviously. They're more an adult part of my life. But to think about if I was a kid and there were two women historians who had a show where they talked about things they loved, I think I would have loved that. And you try to make things that you would want to see in the world. So I think that's always like really cool when we hear about that. Yeah, that's interesting because it does show that the ways people originally connected with their parents over American Girl are not fading. They just change forms. It used to be read-alongs. Now maybe it's, you know, listen-along sessions, but it's still that shared interest. That's really cool. And very surprising. Yeah. Um, there are people who are younger than I would have suspected who listen to the show. Um, we're not an explicit show, which I think also helps. And there are people who really want to like rethink or return to that time where they read these with their kids. And so they listen to kind of eavesdrop in on, on what that would be like. And so it's always been surprising to me because I think for a lot of people, it's like, well, we're two millennial women. So that's our whole audience. And I've really found that to be like mostly true, but not entirely true. Like that there are other people who want to kind of listen in on this conversation. And, and that's something we really do appreciate. Over time, the series definitely has really started to encompass way more historical eras. But have you noticed looking back at all these characters and their stories, are there still any big gaps? You see a certain time frame there's not a doll for, or maybe there is, but you want a corresponding, an extra doll for a different part of it. Is there, if you're like pitching a new character from a new historical era that hasn't been covered yet, what era do you want to really dive into? I think there's a lot of different eras that are not covered well, but I also think there's a pretty profound geographic bias that there are pockets of the country that are not really very well covered by the series because they can't do everything. You just can't. Mm -hmm. And looking back, even the Kirsten books and the Molly books, and to some degree, the Samantha books are set in semi-real places. The actual town that Kirsten is living in in the West is made up. Molly's town is semi-fictional. I think that there is sort of a bias towards the coast to some degree with the stories. You know, there's like a whole lot happening in New York and then not a whole lot happening in the American South. I think something kind of fascinating that they're doing with the Claudie books is they are starting book one in Harlem in New York City and then moving book two to the American South to show two very different experiences through one character. That's very cool. Mari Grace and Cecile books are set in Louisiana during a yellow fever epidemic in the mid-1800s. You could do, obviously, lots of books about the Civil War. We've only gotten one so far. Um, so I would love to see actually more 18th and mid-19th century. I know there's also folks who have really good ideas for more recent history. I think those are all valid. I think those are exciting. 
I also think there's a lot of rich marketing opportunity, which is why they did Courtney in 1986. Mm-hmm. They could sell Pac-Man accessories. They could sell Care Bear stuff. Right. I like it. I'm into it. I own some of it. I would love an 18th century doll that is not Felicity or Kaya. I think mm-hmm. those are two very extremely different stories. I think there is a lot more to be done with that century that would look quite different. Not a succinct answer, not a clear answer, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be done. And I also hear the argument and and think it's valid. There are things that are perhaps better done by other companies or in other mediums. And I really do respect that as well. Yeah, I wonder, maybe it would be... um Maybe it would be preferable then instead of focusing on, you know, creating brand new characters in different eras, maybe just more characters related to the same era, but showing a different a different side of it. Yeah, you look at the way that indigenous people are represented in the Kirsten books, and it's not to pick on those books. There's a lot about them that I really enjoy. I think they'd just be written differently today. I I think that they would. There are many moments in those books where, you know, you are seeing it from a colonial perspective. You are getting a colonial story. You are getting an immigration story. Having an opportunity to meet the indigenous people who are living in that world and perceive Kirsten's arrival, that would be great. So I think that that's true of a lot of different characters, even to some degree, peripheral people in Samantha's world. I think the Rebecca Rubin books were actually a great addition or corrective to some of the things that kind of happen or breeze by in Samantha's world, because you're looking at a very different socioeconomic class of people, right? You're getting a different experience by stepping away from Samantha. You're also learning about a completely different experience with faith and religion. So I really love those books a lot. And I think that's a great example of, yeah, the brand stayed in the same geographic place, only moved ahead about 10 years, but we got something very different than we got with Samantha. Is there any any American Girl character book or series that ranks lower on your list? What would you, if you could change one of the books or pitch your own idea for a certain character's book, like what book do you wish you had some, some editorial choices for? Gosh, and it's really, it's actually not a criticism in the way that you might think it is. I really wish that with Mari Grace and Cecile, they each had six books. That's not a criticism of, I don't like the characters, I don't like anything. I think it was a cool experiment to alternate with people who had different lives in the same place. I really would have just liked six books for each. I really felt like I didn't get as far into either girl's world as I wanted to. I found the spinoffs didn't quite have what I was looking for either which could be a personal thing. That could be an Allison thing. My own issue. I do think for a lot of people, the stories felt rushed. And again, that's where I don't attribute that to an author or even just an illustration team. Clearly someone, you know, in charge of creative decisions wanted that to work that way. And I think there's so much rich material there. New Orleans, which is the backdrop of those stories, is itself a really compelling character. I would have read 12 of those books, no problem. I'll say that because I was revisiting those the other day for something. I thought, gosh, you know, I really just want more out of both of those. Yeah, and that's what's so incredible about critique is that is what they left out, not what they put in. It's about what's there's still more to say. Yeah, and you know, a series I haven't talked about and I love talking about is I simply adored the Caroline books. 
I had almost no expectation for those. I had no idea what to expect. She set in uh, Sackett Harbor, New York during the War of 1812. That is the only author um, that we've had an opportunity to interview on the show. And it was Kathleen Ernst. And we just loved talking to her. It felt like so awesome to talk to someone who'd done behind the scenes work for American Girl and then got to write her own series. Such a dream, obviously. I really appreciate those books and I wish more people read them. Those those are among my favorite. Like if I could do a post-production boost of any books, it would be the Caroline books. Is there a reason for the delay in a new episode or when can we expect more from that? No, so we're still we're still cranking out episodes. So we have been working on the Rebecca Rubin books. So we've gone through all six of those books. And this month, so September 2022, on September 5th, we released an episode with a historian named Leah Sauter. And so she is an expert on Jewish children's literature. And so she talked to us. Later this month, we're talking with people who do interpretation of tenements to kind of get a different view on the Lower East Side. And then much awaited, much wanted and anticipated right after that, we are starting with the kit books. So early October 2022, we are finally getting into the kit books and that will take up the rest of this calendar year. I was going to ask, actually, where where is kit? <laughs> yes, where so. is kit? We went chronologically through the historical dolls we grew up with. That was six characters. Then we went all the way back to the beginning to Kaya. And we are now moving chronologically again. Having finished Rebecca Rubin, who's set in 1914, Claudie is 1920. So she comes before Kit Kidridge. However, all her books aren't out yet. So we're going to wait and probably do her next year. But yeah, we are we are moving on to Kit because the people demand it. So <laughs> Excellent. very excited for that. So for people who are new to the show, then where can they stream it? How can they check it out and support your show? Yeah, so we are on all major podcasting platforms. So we are also part of Audio Boom, which we are very proud to be a part of. So you can search for American Girls Podcast and look for us. We're on Apple, we're on Overcast, all of those things. AmericanGirlsPod.com is the great place to find out more basic information about what we are doing. And you can follow us on socials at a girls pod on Twitter, American Girls Podcast on Instagram. And basically, if you search our names, you'll come up with our show. All right. Awesome. And then my final question then is not really a question. I just wanted to give you the chance to make the case, you know, kind of in defense of history, because I think people who aren't into history think it's a, they, they don't get the importance of studying it or what's interesting about it. So feel free to get on a soapbox about that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Big, big question. So, you know, history is a big part of my life. I'm an interpreter, work at a historic site five out of seven days of the week. And then, you know, historical podcasting and those other things the other days. You know, a word that I've been using way more that I never used to use quite so much out loud is think about what in your life has been taught to you as history and how much of that is propaganda and kind of discerning the difference between those two things. I have conversations every day at my job with people who talk about learning new information that they didn't have before. I think part of the joy and the pain of being a person is you're always getting new information and you're always trying to figure out what to do with that. And 
I think part of what we've all been learning these past few years is no one is expected to be perfect, but you do have to own what kind of society you were raised in and, and what kind of environment and books you were raised with and getting new information and just trying to do better and to be better. History gives you tools to do that. Um, not propaganda, but history. <laughs> and right. I think part of what I love about connecting with people via podcasting, connecting with people face to face is we have these opportunities to say to each other, you know, that's information that I didn't have before. And now I have it and it's up to me to figure out what to do with it. My sort of connective tissue for everything I try to do with history is, am I representing some truth about this? Am I doing a good service to people who lived in the past? And I think American Girl is an imperfect vessel for that, but I think it is a useful way to start conversations. So I always tell people, I'm not good at trivia night. I'm not really <laughs> that great at that. There's certain facts and things I have memorized, but you know, history is not trivia. History is thinking about the human experience. So if you find that boring, that's cool, but maybe you just didn't get exposed to very compelling history. I'll put it that way. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting the propaganda versus like history distinction, the living document nature of history. I think that's what makes communicating and like community and like sharing, learning about history. That's what makes it so valuable. You know, it's not just learning on your own if, with other fans of American Girl or with other fans of whatever era you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think part of what's different, if you go to the dentist, you don't tend to say to your dentist, like, yeah, I'm a real teeth buff. Like, I love teeth. I just do like <laughs> dental experiments on my own. History, just by the very nature of what it is, I meet history buffs every day. I have a PhD in history. That's my background. That's my training. I'm professionally trained in how to study it. I don't own it. And people want to express themselves as buffs or people with an avid interest because it's all of our story. So it is different from other kinds of professions. And I think really good historians try to be welcoming and try to understand that with people versus gatekeeping. I think podcasting is a way to do that. I think there's lots of different platforms and it's better when it's a conversation. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. That wraps up my questions. Really enjoyed learning more about your show. Hope people go check it out. It's called American Girls. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it so much.